Hang on, that, there we go. Okay, so grab a seat and let's dive into let's dive into the book of Exodus. As uh, Alistair prayed before, the massive and squad uh, up uh, at El Rancho on their uh, camps uh, this weekend. By the way, we have some incredible volunteers. Uh, there, well, I'm going to single them out. Steve, um, your husband, like, he was here all last weekend as the producer for um, the, the service. Hmm? Yeah, he was here. For, no, he wasn't here for a hundred years, right? But but he was he was here last weekend as part of a hundred years producing in the morning. He's up all weekend, um, up serving as a, a squad leader this weekend. I mean, it's people like Steve, which just I I saw him yesterday and I thought, man, this is incredible, right? The dedication he's giving to actually serving above and beyond is just remarkable. So so yeah, when you see these leaders, if you're a parent and you see them, know how much they're giving. And just thank them, drop them an email, send them a note, do something to encourage them. They really are serving incredibly. So thank you so much. Sarah and I popped up there yesterday. Um, I got given a seminar to do with the Massive, which is our youth group, age group. And they said, can you teach the entire Old Testament in 45 minutes? So I did that yesterday. I'm going to do Exodus chapter 1 and 30. So uh, I think this is going to be far more relaxing than what that was. We had to move real fast, but uh, it was great fun. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. And we've entitled the series Walking Free. You know, freedom is a dangerous thing. And so often when people think of freedom, they think of no restraint, they think of no control, they think that it's just like, whatever I want, I have freedom to do. We're going to learn as we go through the book of Exodus what walking free really is. We're going to learn about, firstly, how you get free. We're going to learn this morning about what it means, who you're serving. And then we're going to discover um, God's part in getting us to freedom and how you actually live in freedom. And we're going to see there's a depth and a breadth and a, a richness to walking free as a follower of Jesus Christ. So that's where we're going with the book of Exodus. With that in mind, let's start right at the very beginning. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1 says this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. But the Israelites were fruitful increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. And the book of Exodus starts, along with a number of other Bible books, by including a genealogy, which is a reflection of the importance that the ancient Israelites placed on being able to trace their lineage or their whakapapa. And it placed an understanding on who they were and what their purpose was here on earth. The integral questions of who am I and from whom do I come are important so that you might know your place. And Moses, who was writing Exodus, he wanted them to make sure as they read this in years to come that the people in Exodus had come from somewhere. They'd come from a family. 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob was the father, and his son Joseph had gone into Egypt a little earlier. This is the end of Genesis. And he'd gone into Egypt. Uh, He was sold there into slavery by his brothers. And uh, he ended up uh, effectively becoming the prime minister under the pharaoh of the time. And that enabled when uh, the family were under famine in Israel, that they were able to go down into Egypt for food. They there received all the food they needed. In fact, they ended up becoming shepherds in the land of Goshen. And while they were there, they then began to grow. And this, here at the start of Exodus, we're introduced to the birth of a nation. That family went into Exodus, some went into Egypt some 400 years earlier. And they're now about to walk into the world stage as a nation. You know, just as giving birth involves pain, so I've been reliably informed, so this birth of a nation comes through pain and comes through suffering. And while this is a historical account, it's also an example for followers of Jesus Christ. You know, the physical challenges of the nation of Israel that they went through, they provide an example for us, an instruction for us as we live out our relationship with Christ. And we know this because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, it tells us that these things, and it's referring to those things, happened as examples They were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So, here it starts, verse 8. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise they will multiply further and when war breaks out they will join our enemies fight against us, and leave the country. So the Israelites assigned taskmasters over the Israelites, so the Egyptians, sorry, assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of fieldwork. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. Why did this king not know Joseph? After all, he was famous. And uh, he had helped the Egyptians through a time of famine and had really set Egypt up as a world power. Well, Egypt had been conquered many years earlier, in fact, around about 1720 B.C., Egypt had been invaded and conquered by foreigners and these foreign kings put themselves into power and they were known as the Hyksos, the Hyksos rulers, which literally means the foreign rulers. And it was likely that it was the Hyksos rulers who were in power when uh, Jacob and his sons resettled in Egypt. Then after a while, the Egyptians took Egypt back. And as they did that, They were incredibly anti-foreigners. And it became a period of getting rid of the foreigners, getting rid of the Hyksos influence. And one of the pharaohs, Thutmose III, led the charge to drive these Hyksos out of Egypt. And so in this time of effectively ethnic cleansing that was going on, this time of they're saying, we want to get rid of every person who is not Egyptian. This king did not know Joseph. It wasn't just that he couldn't bring him to memory. It's that he chose to say any policy which was set up by the Hyksos rulers, we are now saying null and void, not happening, and we're going to cleanse the land of all foreign influence. 
And yet in the middle of that, the Israelites were growing. And their population growth was taking place in the land of Goshen, which was a part of Egypt. And from an Egyptian perspective, naturally enough, they would have seen this as a threat. For any land or major portion of the land to be filled with people of external origin and allegiance is bound to threaten those who regard themselves as the rightful citizens of the land. You know, hostility to foreigners is a common human trait. It was then, it is so now. As is hostility to to God's plans and God's blessings. You see, the Israelites were in Egypt and were growing because it was God's plan. And they were there and they were growing as a nation through God's blessing. Yet that couldn't keep them from the oppressive attention of the Egyptians. It's interesting, isn't it, that you may have noticed that following Jesus is never a guarantee of a peaceful, simple life. And it wasn't with Jesus and it's not with us. In fact, he's the purest example of good that this world has ever seen. And yet he would be put to death by people who thought that they were doing the world a favor to get rid of him. Have you ever noticed how the Christian belief and views, even in our day and age, are being defined as potentially dangerous and damaging? And I wonder how far that will go in our day. I wonder if you ever let yourself think down that line of thought. I did, and I I came up with these sort of questions. I wonder how I'd cope if church was deemed to be illegal in our nation. I wonder what would change. I wonder what would change in our disciple-making. I wonder what would change in the way we do church. I wonder what if my Christian faith is dependent on the acceptance and favor of society rather than on Christ alone. Or to put it another way, if all I had was the acceptance of Jesus, how would I do? I wonder. And so the pain begins for the Israelites. The Egyptians reordered the Israelite place in society from an independent people to a slave class under the control of the Egyptian slave masters. The goal, though not stated in here, was pretty clear and pretty plain. The goal was to kill off some of the Egyptians through hard labor. A harsher life meant shorter lifespan and therefore higher mortality rates. And and part of their ethnic cleansing would say, we can't kick them out, so instead we'll suppress them and see if we can kill them off while they're in the land. They probably had another thought along this. If we work them hard and fast, they'll get home, they'll be tired, there'll be less energy for procreation. However, that didn't work either because the more they suffered, the more they grew. And this was a political nightmare for Egypt. And for the Israelites, it was this unthinkable suffering that they felt they didn't deserve. And yet for God, this was the beginnings of the birth pains of a nation. And this was all part of his plan. You see, in about 40 to 100 years' time, there's going to be a leader who's going to come along. His name will be Moses. We'll meet him next week. And Moses will come along and he will say to these people, you need to leave Egypt and you need to follow me to the promised land, to the land that was promised to your forefathers. Now, if Egypt was comfortable, if Egypt was everything they need, if Egypt gave them food and shelter and employment and meaning and purpose and recognition and society was a nice place to be in, why would they leave? Why would they leave? 
And so God, in his infinite wisdom, God in his plan said, all right, Israelites, we're going to make this a little uncomfortable. And yes, it was prophesied, but yes, it also was necessary. And I sometimes wonder for us if we are so comfortable that when there's an invitation by God to trust him and to step out, we're going, but I'm just too comfortable. I just like life the way it is. I like my job. I like my home. I like my society. I like everything. It's just too comfortable. I wonder if one of the greatest challenges we face in trusting Jesus is just that. We're too comfortable. They needed to leave Egypt in order to become Israel. They needed to be under a new master. There's an interesting word which is used in verse 13 and 14 where it says that they they worked the Israelites ruthlessly, the idea of working, and down the end it says they made their lives bitter with difficult labor. So the word work and labor and then later on talks about field work. All these ideas are, are one and the same. The word in the Hebrew has a range of meaning that we just simply don't capture in the English language. And it can mean a whole bunch of different things depending on the context. So the word here is used, and we've translated it as work or serve or labor. It can also mean perform or do or make. It can also mean worship or live for or be under the control of. And later in Exodus, Moses will use that same word frequently to refer to Israel's desire to worship or live for or be under the control of Yahweh, be under the control of God. And the point is this, at this point, Israel was having to serve or work under the control of Pharaoh. But what Israel needed was not so much independence or freedom from Pharaoh, but rather they needed a shift of dependency, shifting from um, being under the mastership of Pharaoh to being under the mastership of the living God. They needed to get out from under the oppressive leader so as to be under the one who would be of benefit to them. They needed to move from serving Pharaoh to serving God. See, the principle here is that it doesn't matter who you are, you're always serving somebody. And so it moves on, verse 15. The king of Israel said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose name was Shiprah and the second whose name was Puah, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So, yeah. Anyway, um, so God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Hmm. Yeah, the oppression didn't stop at the hard work and the hard labor. And there was this obvious goal that Pharaoh and the Egyptians were trying to work the Israelites to death. But that obviously wasn't working as well as he wanted, so he thought, right, well, let's take it to the next level. Now imagine, imagine you're a Hebrew or Israelite, same word, midwife. Imagine that you have, 
you, you grew up in, in this place of plenty. You grew up in a society where you were respected, where you, know, you were seen as, as one of the reasons why you know, the nation is how it is. And as you grew up in that environment, you had everything you wanted and needed. And in fact, your home was a place of peace. And you used to have you know, dinner parties around the table and everything was good. And all of a sudden, this new king comes in and the political scene changes. And as the political scene changes, you all of a sudden have this, it's like the smell of fear is in society. And all of a sudden you start to see um, your, your parents and your, your father and your brothers and they just get taken. And someone turns up and raps on the, the door of your home early one morning and drags the men out and sends them off to a mining village miles away. And you don't know if you'll ever see them again. And then you hear the rumors coming back of how they're being mistreated and how they're being killed. And you're wondering, could it get any worse? And you're a midwife and you're still delivering babies and it's all going okay, but you're you're worried, you're nervous, you wonder, could anything worse happen than what's happening now? And all of a sudden, you find yourself one day standing in front of Pharaoh and you're wondering what's going to come. And you're wondering if, if, and then you hear the words come out of his mouth. And he says, when you're delivering the babies, if it's a girl, let it live. If it's a boy, kill it. What would you do? What would you do? And you might say, well, that's easy sitting in the comfort of here. Put yourself in the middle of that regime. Put yourself in that place where you've seen what happens if you disobey Pharaoh. You've seen what happens if you step out of line. You've seen people you love simply disappear. What would you do? Well, this team of incredibly strong courageous women they were prepared to stand up for what was right and stand against the command they had been given I wonder what drove them to that well we find the answer to that in verse 17 where it says they feared the Lord they feared the Lord as opposed to Pharaoh and the the midwives fear of God inspired them to defy the leader of the greatest nation of that day and they risked everything to do what was right instead of what was easy. You know, in our Words to Live by series, we finished a couple of weeks ago, and if you you missed it, you can download it on the app or through the website. The last one of those series on character, we, we talked about a definition of the fear of the Lord, and that was effectively that we would have a continual awareness of Him and a commitment to obey Him. Another commentator offers this definition of the fear of God. It means this, to fear God does not mean being afraid of Him in general, but being afraid of the consequences of disobeying him. And for these women, it was a simple choice. They would rather face the consequence or the punishment, even the possibility of death by disobeying Pharaoh, rather than miss out on the blessing and the joy of obeying God. Now, if you fear a Pharaoh, a slave master, The consequences of disobeying a slave master is punishment. You see, every master 
And remember, we all serve somebody. Every master has an agenda for you. If it's a Pharaoh-style master you fear, then your future is defined by that master's agenda, which is to control you, to reduce you, to do everything it can to ensure you do not become the people or the person that God calls you to be. It's to oppress you, it's to enslave you, it's to kill you and destroy you. On the other hand, if you fear the Lord, then his agenda for you as your master is completely different. His agenda is for your life, is for freedom, for identity, that God created you for life and the overflow of goodness that comes. Even if the outcome looks bleak, and even if there are things which look troubling, you can know that God has the very, very best in mind for you. You Jesus himself talked about two masters. He called the Pharaoh master a thief. He called him Satan. And in John 10, 10, he puts it this way. A thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come, that is Jesus, that is God. I have come so that you might have life and might have it in abundance. See, who you fear, whoever your master is, determines if you live an oppressed life or an overflowing life. You know, so often we... We find ourselves in that place of saying, well, you know, should I obey God? And you know, even we, we were talking about this earlier this morning, just a very practical, simple little example. You know, sometimes you, you, know, you sense the Holy Spirit challenge you or, or nudge you, and, and you have that little moment in your mind saying, you know, I really I would love to be prayed for. I would just love someone to come and pray for me. And, and oftentimes, here's what I find, because that's the same with me, is I go, oh, look, seriously, I don't need to. And I walk away, and, and I don't have the blessing of someone praying for me. Last weekend at the 100 Years Reunion, we had a number of people who, and this had been a prayer we'd had as a church, wasn't it, that people would come and they would sense refreshment from God. And last weekend, we had people come, and they would come and say, could you pray for me? And this morning, there are different churches all around the country because they all came back. And our prayer is that as they're there, the refreshment that they had had last weekend would then sprinkle out throughout this nation. And, you know, sometimes there is that moment where you, you just have the sense of, I really need to step out and ask for prayer from someone. Now, what's the consequence if you don't do that? It's not that God looks at you and goes, you terrible individual. I can't believe that you didn't go and get prayer. I can't believe that you didn't ask for someone to help you. No, it's just you missed out. No, you, you just missed out on the blessing of God. And see, God does not look to you to punish you. But there is this incredible life that you have that's yours if you obey him and if you walk in his way. This is what these wonderful women discovered. And we know this from the story in Exodus 1. The midwives obeyed God. And because they feared him, God blessed them by giving them families. And that for them was a massive thing. But what's interesting is in the middle of that, things got worse. And the Pharaoh agenda was still raging, as is the satanic agenda today. But even in the middle of that, there are glimmers of blessing while the war still rages. And here's how it got worse. Last verse of this chapter. Pharaoh then commanded all his people, You must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. I've got to tell you, that's the most fantastic verse to end a message on. Imagine being there. 
what had gone on in the, the propaganda machine of Egypt to get to a place where the ruler of the land could stand up and could issue a decree, find any Jewish boy and kill him, and we'll celebrate him. Heard that story before? Happens throughout history, doesn't it? The Jewish people, the Israelite nation, has been the, the butt of so much oppression. God's special people. And here in this moment, it's happening again. And here, if you found an Israelite boy, a Hebrew boy, a Jewish boy, you were free by the decree of the law of the land to go throw them in the Nile, to kill them. That's how dark it got to. Pharaoh's final edict meant that the promise of freedom, of identity and redemption, while it's coming, it's not going to be easy. There's trial and there is pain, but through it all, God is on the throne, even if the clouds of evil seem to be concealing his presence. So what does this tell us? What does this teach us? What does this dark chapter illuminate in our lives? Well, the questions from it are life-changing. You see, Exodus teaches us to walk free. And to do that, we need to identify whose control we are currently walking under. So my question to you right at the end is this. Who or what do you serve? Who is in control? Who is the master of your life? Is it God? Which means that you have this incredible opportunity to walk in freedom. Or is it something else? Someone else? Who pulls the strings in your life? The question to ask and behind that is then you say, well, it's not God, but it's this. Ask, well, what's the agenda? What's the agenda of the person you're serving? What's the agenda of that that you are serving? Is that for your life and your goodness and for your godliness and for your hope for now and for eternity? Because if it's not, the agenda is not your best interests. Jesus said, I've come that you want to have life and life to the full. There is no greater person that we should surrender our life to. There is nothing greater, no one greater than the Lord God Almighty himself whose agenda for your life is for your life. Would you stand with me? You know, freedom is not the absence of a master. Freedom is serving the right master. That's really the question. Who's the master of your life? Right now, I just invite you to bow your heads and take a moment and just say, Lord, I want you to be the master of my life. And if for you, you you're thinking through this, you go, man, I, I honestly don't know if you are. I'm challenged, I'm finding, as I think back at my past week, there have been times where I've chosen to obey something else. I've chosen to follow something else. And I think back on it, that's probably meant I, I missed out on something. I missed out on, on a blessing. I missed out on just the joy of saying yes to you. Yeah, here's the great thing. There's no condemnation. Instead, there's just an invitation to say, you know what, start again. Allow God's grace to start right now.
So in this moment, just take a second and say, God, here I am. I want to live for you afresh. I want to serve you, follow you. Know your ways in my life. Father, thank you for what we can learn through your word. Lord, as we, as we respond and, and worship now, Spirit of God, would you continue to prompt us and lead us and guide us? Help us to understand your call on each of our lives. Father, we ask this in your wonderful, wonderful name. Amen. Let's worship. Sasha's going to lead us. between us.